Hi everyone, it's Janice, host of the Divorcing Religion podcast. Thanks for tuning into my show, whether you're joining me on audio or video. I've heard from some folks recently who have told me just how much the show has meant, and some of them have even found it not only to be life-changing, but life-saving, as they felt there was no one else who understood what they were going through, and they found the Divorcing Religion podcast, and they started feeling encouraged. Please help me keep my show on the air, become a member by clicking the join button on the Conference on Religious Trauma YouTube channel. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Divorcing Religion podcast. I'm your host, Janice Selby. I'm a registered professional counselor and a religious recovery consultant. You never forget your first kiss, your first love, or your first trauma bond. 16-year-old Sarah believed her boyfriend would save her from her dysfunctional home. When her parents discovered that they'd committed the sin of premarital sex, the aftermath left the two teenagers irrevocably bonded in trauma. Part memoir, part self-help guide, Trauma Bonded, pairs therapist Sarah Westbrook's journey of recovery with mental health insights for overcoming toxic relationships and finding peace after complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Sarah Westbrook, MS, LPC, NCC, is the founder of Westbrook Counseling Services and Daisy Girl Communications. As a survivor of chronic trauma and emotional neglect, Sarah understands the work that goes into healing from CPTSD. Sarah is the host of two podcasts, Unpacking Mormonism and Other Religious Trauma and Raising Crazy, Growing Up to Show Up. I love those names. And you can learn more about Sarah and her work at daisygirlcommunications.com. Welcome, Sarah. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. And I see you've got your book right behind you, uh, Trauma Bonded. I think you mentioned that came out fairly recently in uh, September of 2023. Correct. Yes. And it's been very successful so far. A lot more than I was anticipating. I think a lot more than any of us were. Oh, exciting. So that's been really exciting. That's fantastic. And so you have a whole bunch of degrees, as I was reading out all the letters uh, after your name. Would you take us back to where it all began, back to your childhood? What was it like uh, growing up in your family of origin? You know, honestly, so I grew up in a small Mormon community in northeastern Arizona. And I would say 80% or more of the population of that little small town, I'm going to say five, 6,000 people when I was growing up there, were also Mormon. So kind of, for me, it was just normal. I didn't know any different. Um, My parents were both practicing Mormons and, and just Real quick, Mormons prefer the name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Um, Every time I use the term Mormon, the current Mormon prophet says that's a victory for Satan. So, um, but I've been, I grew up knowing myself and and identifying as, as Mormon because it was only off limit. It's only been off limits for the last few years. So I'm going to continue to use the term Mormon because that's what my identity was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think. Satan's excited about it. (laughs) 
I don't. So if there is a Satan. Um, so yeah, for me, it was just normal. Um, I grew up with a, a dad who was later diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. Um, so my life was very chaotic, but as a young child, I wouldn't have known any different. Um, and as narcissists commonly do, he was the hero in everything in his life. So he was the best teacher. He taught uh, fifth and sixth grade. So here in the States, that's what, 10, 11, 12-year-old kiddos. Um, and of course, according to him, all of his students loved him. Um, all of the coworkers loved him. And if they didn't, it was because they were stupid. They didn't know any better. Um, he was the best. Um, and even in he, he and my mom's arguments, he was always right, always the best. His ideas were the best. And because of my Mormon upbringing, the man um, was in charge. It's a very patriarchal society. But not only was he in charge, but in the Mormon faith, he held the priesthood. And what the priesthood meant was that he had special permission and godly powers that he was allowed to enact God's will on earth. And so if somebody was sick, he was able to give them a healing blessing. And under the power of God, that person would be healed. And if that person wasn't healed, it was because they didn't have enough faith or there was something in their life that they had wow. to fix. And wow. so growing up, this was all very normal. It made perfect sense. Um, I loved my dad. I thought he was the hero. I noticed that he told great big whoppers or that he would exaggerate stories in order to demonstrate his intelligence and his expertise. And so I grew up and developed the habit of exaggerating and feeling like I had to in order to be heard. As I entered my teen years, what I what I discovered was that when I exaggerated, uh, people didn't believe me. Whoa, big, big realization. <laughs> um, and I and I didn't like it. And I felt like um, love and friendships were being withdrawn. And then that was supported in my home because when I wasn't the hero of the story, I wasn't good enough. I had to be the hero mm -hmm. to be loved at home. And so there was a lot of dysfunction there. Mm -hmm. And so as you said in your introduction, when M Mormons... Um, when I was 16 and had sex, Mormons are, they, they preach and teach abstinence. And if you have sex prior to marriage, you can no longer get married in a Mormon temple, which means that your marriage will no longer last into the eternities and your children will not be sealed to their parents in the eternities. And it will be my fault that all these horrible things happen to my children and the sins of the children will be my responsibility because I didn't check all the Mormon boxes. That is so heartbreaking. That is such a devastating yeah. pressure uh, to put on a young person. That is just awful. Well, and we're taught in Mormonism from the time we're little, we've always got to be looking for our eternal companion. So, I mean, from the time I was itty bitty all the way up until I got married, it was marry a returned Mormon missionary, make sure you don't have sex, make sure you obey the health code or the word of wisdom, which is, you know, no alcohol, no tobacco, no tea. Um, they don't really talk about 
the do's, but there are do's in the, in the Mormon health code, but they don't really talk about them. And it's, it's pretty much set up for, and if you don't, you're not worthy and you're going to mess everything up for your future and your eternal posterity. So it was very much, if you mess up in this life, you will be dealing with an eternal existential crisis for the rest of eternity. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go to hell. And not only will you be responsible for your mistakes, but you'll be responsible for the mistakes of your posterity because you fell astray. So yeah, so much pressure, especially on a teenager and a young child constantly perform. Um, And so, I I mean, I did struggle a little bit with some religious scrupulosity or religious OCD. Um, My mom, for sure, has that um, toxic perfectionism, uh, religious OCD or scrupulosity. And then she also was diagnosed with covert narcissism. Hers is a lot more subtle than my dad's. Hers is she cannot be wrong. Um, She has to always look good for others. She has to know what's best. And and she kind of gets this, yes, Tom, or, oh, sorry, I just told you my dad's real name. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so my, that is his real name. So it, it's like, look at my father in my book. His name is Dave. So I'll, I'll use Dave from here out. But mm-hmm. um, look at Dave. Yes, he's exaggerating, but his heart is in a good place. So it doesn't matter. I know better, but I also know that his intention is good. So we're all good. Wow. Um, Doesn't that in some way, uh, it's almost codependency veering its head uh, there as well. I mean, I see that in my own family of origin. Oh, my God. It's like you're my sister from another mister. So father who was diagnosed with narcissism and cluster B uh, traits and uh, then um, just the whoppers you were mentioning telling whoppers and then you also felt like you had to have exaggerated importance by being the hero can totally relate to that uh and then a mother who isn't quite willing to say that this uh, partner is out of line and the children are suffering as a result but instead as well you know he really does love you or he really does love us uh you know he's still he's he's not cheating uh and he's still bringing paychecks home like really the bare minimum right and he's not beating you and he's Mm. not sexually abusing (laughs) you you're you're good this isn't that big of a deal yeah Mm. yeah wow yeah, that's that's her. That's her MO. And then the other thing is a lot of what what we call spiritual bypassing, which is we just have to have faith and let things be and God will take care of it. And the issue with spiritual bypassing is you're handing it over to this higher being that you can't see, that you can't, I mean, I know a lot of people say they can communicate with, but it's not, you know, picking up the phone and having this constant feedback that's tangible, you know, so you get a lot of cognitive bias and cognitive dissonance and reinforcement of your own ideas. Because if I have this idea and it seems like it's going to work and then God tells me it's going to work, I'm golden. I can excuse away a lot of really toxic behaviors. And so you end up avoiding your own dysfunction, your the, your own uh, struggle, your own, you know, the core traumas that have occurred because we're just going to give it over to God and he's just going to take care of it someday, which stops you from healing here. And you get a temporary feeling of peace 
And you're like, hey, my faith is working. But then at the very next corner, you run, you bump into the same thing. So you end up with the cyclical, I almost want to say like the abuse cycle with God mm-hmm, in the yes. sense of um, something happens. I behave toxically. God's just trying me. This is just a test of my faith. I turn it over to God. I feel temporarily better. I'm looking for all these beautiful things God gives me. Something bad happens. And I start all over again. So very much like the abuse cycle that we utilize with domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And except we're doing it to ourselves in the sense of I'm giving everything away to an existential being and not dealing with the things that I can control or dealing with the things I can't control and learning how to maneuver differently inside relationships, business practices your own religious or cultural upbringing. Mm-hmm. And so really the spiritual bypassing stops you from mm-hmm. healing progress. And so that's really, that's that's the main reason why I wrote my book was super honest accountability about my role in how my life was completely, I don't know if you cuss on your show, but. Oh, yes. Great. Completely <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. I'm, I'm a. We have a cussing <laughs> practice here. Let it all out. Um, so anyway, I, I was not, you know, when I was younger and stuck in these toxic patterns that were really not healthy for me, my husband, our children, and, you know, the people that were involved in that. And then once I took full accountability for the things I had learned before I even knew that I was being taught anything. And was able to deal with my dysfunction, my triggers, my issues, and how that then led us to, and my family, to a much happier existence. And then also how that led to me leaving the Mormon faith, which I would say absolutely fits the criteria, you know, the diagnostic criteria or the criteria for a Mm cult-like organization. I might even Mm -hmm. say they're kind of a, a soft cult or a benevolent cult in the sense of they're not doing the great big, you know, we're not branding people like Nexium and we're right. not drinking Kool-Aid, you know, mm-hmm. like Jonestown or um, Heaven's Gate. We're not doing those types of things. Right. We're doing all of this wonderful service and giving and stuff in the name of God while at the same time instilling toxic perfectionism, scrupulosity, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and keeping people oppressed the kool-aid is metaphorical (laughs) it's it's not it's not literal yeah and and so then um tell a little bit about uh the idea of trauma bonding so you had a boyfriend when you were 16 i imagine he was mormon but i don't know he was not that Mm. was actually part of the problem so his name is michael that is his real name i got his permission to to utilize that Mm -hmm. um Michael and I became very much in love as as teenagers. And I'm a teenage love, like really high highs, um, really low lows, you know, normal, immature love. And we were doing normal teenager things with sexual exploration. Like we were good kids Mm -hmm. and and we were exploring our adult selves and proclivities um, with each other. And um, one of the reasons that I fell so hard for Michael is that I could be the real Sarah shed all of these Mormon 
pieces. I didn't have to be perfect. He still loved me. Like Mm -hmm. if I messed up, there was no religious lecture. There was no, oh, you got to go talk to the bishop and repent. None of that. I could be completely imperfect and relaxed with him. And he still loved me. And in fact, he empathized with me and he validated me. And then I got to watch him interact with small children. And he was so gentle and so kind to his children. And they didn't have to be perfect. So like in my home, um, I was on the competitive. So we were, um, my cheer squad in the high school was similar to like a competitive dance team, but we didn't compete outside of the high school realm. Um, And then I played the flute and I sat first chair in flute. So for me, I started playing in fifth grade. I'd have been about 10, 11 when I started playing the flute and I outperformed the first chair. So she would have been playing two years longer than me within my first six months of playing. Mm -hmm. And once I hit the first chair, I was the best flute player in my high school. Nothing was going to stop me from keeping that spot because as the best, mm-hmm. my dad had brag- bragging rights and my daughter's the best flautist and she's mm-hmm. amazing on this, you know, cheerleading dance team. And, and we were, we were a very talented group of young ladies. I was not the best dancer on the team, but I was definitely in, in the best. And when it suited my dad, he would compare me to another girl on our team. Her name was Whitney. And she's better. She moves more naturally. You need to loosen your body up. You need to like, he was giving me these skills. I was not good enough, but I was also on. So we took state. That would have been my junior year. Um, I was no longer on the squad when they took the state competition. We took third in state uh, my sophomore year. And that was my last year because my dad, since I'd had sex, I had to quit cheer because short skirts meant I would have sex again. So Wow. Lots of lots of dysfunction. If you want to know more about that story, go go read the book. It is all there. How did they find out? Um, I so Michael and I had sex. Um, oh, let me just finish this thought. So Michael, in comparison with my father, my father was very lorded over. And unless you were the best, you weren't loved. And Michael was, you're a human and I love you. And for me, so he was 18, I was 16. Um, We met like 15, 17, had sex, 16, 18. Um, And I never, I never had that type of a male role model in my life. And then having that type of a male love me and value me, I was, I mean, I was deep in love with Michael. Now, Mm -hmm. Michael had some mental health issues at the time that I didn't understand that made our relationship maybe not super healthy, but that is why we were so bonded. Mm -hmm. My parents found out he and I had had sex because um, Michael and I didn't use protection. And that was, that was just kind of dumb on our parts. But we also, in, in, you know, my defense as Mormons, we were taught abstinence. Mm -hmm. We were not taught about, but if you're not, then let's get you on birth control or a condom or mm-hmm. let's do something about it. But we we would prefer, there was no, we prefer abstinence, but if you're going to make a different choice, let's keep you safe. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't have even at that point in my life known how to get a condom. I mean, for crying out loud, I didn't know what a period was and what oh, that wow. meant for me until mine started. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know how you got pregnant until my period started and my mom 
finely explained the actual birds and the bees rather than here's a uterus, here's an ovary, sperm gets in there. How does sperm get in there, mom? Um, well, it just does. <laughs> <laughs> like I walked around for a while as a young kiddo thinking a heating pad. If I used a heating pad on my back, I would get pregnant because when my mom was pregnant with my youngest sister, she used a heating pad a lot on her back. So oh. I, I was much older before I truly understood. Yeah. And the bees, if that gives you kind of this, like nobody talked about it. It wasn't talked mm -hmm. about in the schools. In the state of Arizona, they still don't. It's not legally precedented to teach that to the kids. So it's it's like school district Rue. Some of the districts do. Some of the districts don't. Unbelievable. Have to take the specific class. Parents are allowed to opt out. But the state statute is still, to this day, teach abstinence. Wow. Sex ed. That's so, insane. Yeah, that's, that's what I grew up in. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I didn't know. And so Michael and I had sex. And then I wrote him a note that night. And I was like, we didn't use protection. What if I'm pregnant? Are you going to leave me or lie about it? Like all these other young men that I'm seeing do mm -hmm. to their, um, to their partners. Because of course, in the small teeny Mormon community where sex isn't taught and there's not a whole lot to do. Um, and everybody's super trusting. There was a lot of teenage pregnancy in my mm -hmm. in my school district, a lot of it. Um, there was also a lot of, just to give you an idea of that culture, there was a lot of underage marriage. Like there were several young men and young women where their parents consented to their daughters, like 16, 17, getting married to 21, 22, 23-year-olds. Like mm -hmm. that was normal. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. All they had to do was, you know, marriage signed. Your wow. parents. Yeah. So... That was normal. That's what I, that's, that is what I grew up in. Mm. Um, so anyway, and, and I think a lot of that was because you have to be married to have sex. So if your teenagers are sexually active, it's better that they just get married and then they'll be good. Then they won't be sinning anymore. So let's let, wow. let's let really young girls marry young adult males. Mm -hmm. So that way, yeah, that was that's horrible. Horrible. So I wrote that note to Michael and he wrote me a note back and reassured me, if you're pregnant, you know, I'm not leaving you. I will do everything to take care of you and the baby. Like no questions asked. Like I will not betray you in that manner. And so I felt at ease and I was like, okay, so well in the future, let's use condoms. Do you know how to get condoms kind of a thing to Michael? And he was like, yes, I can do that because he was not Mormon. Uh, my dad didn't like him because he was not Mormon. Mm. He smoked cigarettes. Mm. And um, he's he's a little quirky uh, to this day. He and I are still friends. He's a little quirky. He's not, you know, your normal masculine her kind of a male that my dad wanted me to marry. Ah. Um, so he was a no-go because he was not Mormon and he smoked. So anyway, um, Michael's mom found the note. She, you know, doing laundry or whatever, found found the note um, in Michael's room, read it, and then let my parents know that we were sexually active. And my parents did not handle that well oh. at all. Um, they ended up basically holding me hostage in my own home for months. Oh. Uh, I was not allowed to go anywhere without my mom literally coming with me. And the way my dad got away with it was he told me, he made me go confess to the police um, the police, the police, because because we'd been ditching school, um, 
And there were some other things going on that, you know, read the book and you can learn those details. But I had to go confess to the police and I was put on, quote unquote, probation. And so the police officer was like, hey, we don't really punish this, you know, make better choices. And we like you. Like, let's be friends. Let's not terrify you. And my dad came home and said the police changed their mind. And so my probation was to help my mom as a student aide in the kindergarten classroom where she was the teacher's aide. And the principal allowed it. So this meant you weren't getting your own education anymore at that point? I So I did um, pre-online school. Um, I did some credit recovery through a program. It was the American School of Correspondence out of Illinois. So I would self-study and then I would do the assignments on paper, mail them in. It was snail mail. So it took forever. And then I started my junior year back in the in Snowflake High School in uh, northeastern Arizona. And I actually ended up choosing to graduate a year early. The principal of the school denied it, and understandably so, because basically I was trying to do two and a half years of high school credits in a year. And so the way I did that is I made up the lost credits through the correspondence school. I did my senior year through the correspondence school, and I did my junior year at the high school. Uh, But that junior year of high school was miserable because rumors had, once my parents pulled me out of high school and held me basically captive in my own home, then the rumors were, well, Sarah, Sarah Lee is pregnant. Um, Sarah, and then when I went back to school and I never got fat, then it was Sarah Lee had an abortion because apparently a miscarriage couldn't have happened. Um, I was never pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, spoiler alert, I have infertility. Um, so I was never pregnant, could have had all the sex in the world I wanted and would not have gotten pregnant. Um, so yeah, it was, it was awful. But when you leave those concentrated religious organizations or you're not following the rules, I was shunned by the community. Mm -hmm. Um, I went from being incredibly popular and well-liked to Sarah is dangerous. We can't ask her to homecoming. We can't ask her to prom. Um, We're not going to hang out with her because she is going to be a bad influence on you. Mm -hmm. And then at home, I've got my dad saying, your teachers think, you know, we were at a staff meeting and your teachers said, blah, 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 um, about you and nobody trusts you and everybody knows you're just trying to sleep with everybody. Like I got punished. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the childhood and a so heavy. Yeah. I'm really sorry yeah. that all that happened. That's just, that's just terrible and so absolutely tracks. Trauma. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And when you talk about being in a home with a father who is not only a religious fundamentalist, but a narcissist as well. And then a mother who is uh, unsupportive at the least, emotionally neglectful as, I mean, narcissists are emotionally neglectful because they only have enough for themselves. They're not going to be wasting anything on anybody else. So there were a couple of times where my dad crossed into physical violence with me. And my mom stood by and did, did nothing. She never stopped him. She would tell me like when he would leave, she'd be like, I don't think we should be holding you captive in our home. She didn't use those words. She was like, I don't think you should be this grounded. I think you should go back to school. I think we should do what that one counselor said that one time. But your dad is the priesthood holder. So it's all on him. So she was really good at just being like, I'm not wow. going to do anything about it. This is your dad's fault. So Incredible. that was that was the dynamic. And so you had asked mm-hmm. me about trauma bonds. Yeah. And so one of the things I illustrate in the book is that I was trauma bonded with my abusers 
So my parents, in the sense of like kind of that Stockholm syndrome, mm-hmm. I wanted to be loyal. I wanted to please them. I would do anything they asked me to escape the captivity that they were holding me in. Um, into my adult years, I had to be like the perfect parent I needed. Children that were very well-behaved, they needed to be perfectly well-behaved. Um, they needed to be successful. They needed like kind of the same thing that was put on me. But my motivation wasn't go do what you love and do your best. It was if my kids are the best and I'm the best parent and I'm the smartest in the family, then I'll regain my parents' love and they'll love me the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like my my parents pitted me and my siblings against each other in competition constantly constantly. Um, and so I didn't, I don't, I never built those bonds with my siblings because I was too busy trying to be enough for my parents. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also created what we would call like survivor type trauma bonds in the sense that Michael and I shared a horrifically traumatic experience. So my dad tried to get Michael arrested for uh, statutory rape because he was 18 and I was 16. So adult child. And of course the cops were like, was it consensual? So then my dad tried to blackmail me to get me to say it wasn't consensual. It was my idea. Then my dad was like, if you're pregnant, the baby has to go for adoption. We're going to claim we don't know who the dad is. Like over and over and over. It was this nasty, let's just pretend brutalized, brutalized. Anyway, my enunciation is bad to Michael. And so he and I went through this experience together and we never had any closure for our relationship. And so when we reconnected because of the United States Army, not because we chose to, it just happened. Uh, Read the book for that. It's like Mm -hmm. a, this cannot have actually happened kind of story. Did When he and I reconnected, we, I, I was able, at that point, I didn't call it a trauma bond, but there was a visceral, feral need in me to make sure he was okay, that his emotional state was healthy. It was my responsibility to fix him mm. in my head with this trauma bond at the expense of my husband. And my. at the one time, we had one child and we were in the process of adopting our second child. Michael had one child with his wife and they had one on the way. In fact, our second children were born within like five days of each other. Wow. And he and I had an affair. And then the way he and I have connected over the years, you can just see it. He's in trouble. I go to his rescue, no matter the cost to myself and my family. And that's, that's that trauma bond. And I, we see these similar behavioral patterns in, and veterans. So because my husband is a retired United States Army officer, um, I worked the first chunk of my career with a lot of Army veterans and a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I would see these battle buddies that had been in the trenches together that had been, you know, we call it downrange, meaning active war zones, where they come back to the States and because they're the only ones who can relate to the trauma that they experienced they have each other's backs in a way, no matter the cost to their respective families and job responsibilities and and these types of things. And so right now in the literature, if you look up trauma bonds, you're going to see trauma bonds 
only being described between like the abuser and the victim. And I'm here to say, uh-uh, we see the same. I will do anything, no matter the cost, with individuals who share certain traumatic experiences. And so far in my clinical research, I've seen it with natural disaster survivors. I've seen it with first responders um, quite a bit. I see it with my veterans quite a bit. Um, I see it with um, families or or people that are experiencing shared traumatic experience. So right now I'm seeing it a lot in the ex-Mormon community. So I'm a part of the ex-Mormon community and it's a great community because one of the things that Mormonism does very well is community and family values. They, they mm-hmm. do that very well. As long as you follow all of their rules, community and family values are stellar. As soon as you step out of that, then we get into the shunning mm-hmm. and the isolation and the criminalization of normal human thinking skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I see in my in my ex-Mormon community is people who have not resolved their religious trauma will bond with others within that, re- in that ex-religious community in incredibly toxic ways where they are now coming to the rescue of their community members at the expense of themselves and everybody else around them. And so mm-hmm. I'm here to say that what I'm seeing, what, I'm, what I've experienced and what I am experiencing is that trauma bonds affect us when there's, you know, perpetrator victim trauma, when there's shared traumatic experiences, and when there's similar traumatic experiences. Those are kind of the three mm-hmm. areas where I'm, I'm watching this neurological change in the brain impact relationships and how we interact within those relationships and how often this trauma bond where I love you or I feel obligated to fix you dynamic comes in and I'm going to call all of those trauma bonded. Okay. So it's, it's not just, the bonds aren't just vertical, but they can be horizontal uh, as well. So not just with the uh, perpetrator and the victim, but also with people who have been through the same or similar circumstances. And then it sounds like uh, it relates to attachments. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about uh, attachment styles and trauma or yeah, I mean, so I, I really like Bulby's work on attachment and mm-hmm. oh goodness, the other lady's name just completely. It's Bulby and somebody else and her name Johnson? is Johnson. Sue Johnson. Not Sue Johnson. I love Sue Johnson uh as we get into like familial relationships. Uh I wanna say Ains. Okay. Ains. Oh goodness, I'm getting that wrong. I'll I'll have to uh remember that. But um they do the theory of attachment and we talk about you know, that's that's where we get your your anxious or your ambivalent attachment. You get your, um, oh, goodness, and different attachment. My brain is just offline on attachment. Secure and Secure avoidant and disordered. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Those, organized. those four yeah. attachments, those come from the research of Bowlby and the other lady I can't remember right now. And then Sue <laughs> Johnson takes those and builds beautifully off them. So does uh, Robin Gobble. Um, but she does it more on the pediatric, like foster children oh. um, side. So like, okay. hey, you're neurotypical and you're raising a 
child who's experienced trauma. She does a very beautiful job uh, with her work there. Um, but when when we are in a secure attachment where my parents are predictable and my emotional and physiological needs are being met consistently and predictably, I grow up with all the correct neurology pieces in place for the best opportunity to have self-confidence, um, security in my own relationships. I'm able to do good for others. And even if it's not reciprocated, I don't take that personally. Like I'm gonna have the best chance of functioning. Anxious attachment or ambivalent means things are very wishy-washy and usually is because parents are inconsistent. So especially on the emotional side. So yes, you'll get fed. Yes, you have a roof over your head, but I may not be in tune with your emotional needs, but even sometimes food and resources are unpredictable. So when we're looking at anxious ambivalent, we're looking at a lot of unpredictability. Your um, disorganized, hang on a sec, I'm getting this wrong. Anxious is, anxious is physiology. There we go. Physiological needs not being met and um, emotional needs not being met inconsistently. And then the indifferent one, which I can't remember. What is that one? Avoidant. Again? Avoidant, thank you, mm -hmm. is when parents are meeting your physiological needs consistently, but not your emotional needs. Okay. That's going to be like your super high achievers, but I cannot connect emotionally. Oh, uh, yeah. Disorganized is kind of a combination of the um, indifferent and the um, ambivalent. So you're going to, that's where your cluster Bs really show up. So everything was inconsistent, you know, um, with the anxious, there's not a lot of physical abuse with ambivalent. You also start bringing in some of that physical abuse or the severe neglect, um, inconsistencies, and mm. then secure as things, things were great. Mm -hmm. Um, in all of the attachment styles, other than secure, there's a component where there's a deficit in my ability to connect in healthy ways within any relationship, meaning, you know, especially intimate partnerships, but also with my children and whatnot moving forward. So it's very common to see the avoidant attachment style not be emotionally available for their children. So it kind of breeds more mm -hmm. and um, avoidant children because they never learned how to connect emotionally. And we're talking in the first six years mm -hmm. of life. And so that you're going to kind of see these patterns through generational trauma cycles. Um, and then on the other two, there's a huge fear of abandonment. It's I want, so by the time you get to the avoidant, I don't want any connection. Like I'm better on my own ultra independence. We're going to call ultra independence as a trauma response. Mm -hmm. On the other side, you've got your, anxious, which is very much, I need this need met, but I'm so, you're going to see a lot of dependent personality. Like I need you. I need you every minute. I need you to reassure me every second. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have a weekend work trip. Oh my gosh, he's leaving me. This is horrible. Mm -hmm. He or she is leaving me. Um, my whole life is going to fall apart. Oh my God, the world is going to end. Oh, wait, mm -hmm. you're back. Okay. I need you. I need you. I need you. You're going to see a lot wow. of it's exhausting. I call it leech. Like 
you're literally sucking your partner dry. And anxious personalities are most or ambivalent, most often attracted to avoidant. So you've got the avoidant that's like, I don't need anybody. Yeah. With the I need you constantly. Wow. Then your disorganized is where you're going to get into your cluster Bs, which is I hate you. Don't leave me. I love you. You're an asshole. Mm. You know, it's your fault that my life is this hard. I can't take accountability. It's just very, very back and forth, wishy-washy. Both um, anxious, ambivalence, and disorganized usually self-sabotage their relationships because they have not yet learned different skills. And then the good news is with treatment, you can learn how to do this differently. I was very disorganized, um, in especially in my 20s. I had a very disorganized attachment style. And now I would say I have been able to overcome that. But in order to do that, I have to be really honest with myself mm. and how I'm not living up to what I want to be and where is my role in this. And, and I had to really learn how to stop blaming well, if this hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened. And the way I did it was through counseling. Um, I was blessed. My second son, who was adopted, um, had pediatric onset schizophrenia. So he was diagnosed oh. at four right before his fifth birthday with oh psychosis for the first time. Wow. Um, but he was anything but the perfect child, screaming tantrums, very autistic like oh. tendencies. Yeah. Um, and so he's, you know, he's 19 now and he's doing amazing. Um, he's disabled. My husband and I have to provide a lot of his care for him. He's not able to on his own. But what is so beautiful about me raising Brig is that I had to learn first not to give a crap about what anybody thought of me. It became a survival mechanism. Yes. And then after the affair that I had with Michael, I was like, I had a great marriage. I wasn't looking for an affair. It just kind of hit me out of nowhere. It lasted a couple of months. It was a whirlwind of crazy. I need help. This is not working for me. And, and it was that counselor that started to point out, hey, your exaggeration is actually harming you. Hey, your lying is actually harming you. Hey, let's calm down. You're harming you. What's going on? And he was amazing. And his name is Jim. And he has, I believe, passed away. So I used his real name because we couldn't find him. Um, and if he's still alive, he's very, very old at this point. Because I saw, <laughs> when I started seeing him, he was in his late 60s. Um, he was close to retirement at that point of his career. And it's been over 20 years. So, And had you already been on your own um, educational journey around mental health? Or did that no. come after Jim? Oh, yes. After Jim, um, I went into mental health looking for answers mm -hmm. for Brig because the more we went in for Brig, the more the doctors were like, there's an issue in your parenting. And I was like, hey, I have two kids and only one's acting like this. Hey, I have three kids and only one's acting like this. I have four kids and only one is acting like this. I have five kids. What the hell am I doing? Um, I have eight now, by the way. Um, oh, my. <laughs> Five are adopted and three are ours biologically. Um, yeah. But uh, Mormons have big families. Like yeah. one of the things you get into heaven is you have as many children that you need to raise into Mormonism. And the more you do that, the more righteous you are, mm -hmm. the more elevated your position will be. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, oh, the, I only have one kid that's like literally cannot manage me telling him 
know at all without falling into six hours of tantruming and, oh, and harming wow. himself and screaming at things that nobody can see and what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And so I actually went into mental health to find answers for him. And, and what I found was, Sarah, you've got a lot of unresolved issues here and you can't be stable for Brig until you figure this out. But no, I followed in the Mormon way. Um, my dad liked my husband because my husband served a Mormon mis- mission in Boston, Massachusetts, which is where my dad served his mission. So automatically trust there. <laughs> and my husband hates the color green. And my husband hates, or my hu- husband and my father hate the color green. Wow. Okay. But he was suddenly, and he was Mormon, and he had returned missionary. All the important all things. All the Mormon boxes. Yep. And he, all the important things. So I got the green light. So I married the man because I was like, whoo, got to get out. But I uh, was 18 and two and a half months old when mm-hmm. I got married. Um, at the time, I was teach. I was the choreographer for the community college, where my husband and I met. Um, I was not allowed to go away to school because then I would just sleep with everybody. So my dad, because I graduated from high school when I was in the United States, you're not an adult till you're 18. I graduated from high school when I was 17. So my dad would not give me consent to go away to all of these wonderful colleges, even though I had full ride scholarships because of music and dance. Wow. Um, so I ended up at our little community college in our local area. My husband ended up at that same community college um, because he had academic scholarships and because he did not return from his Mormon mission in time to apply anywhere else. And we met in choir um, and show choir. So I was working as a work study, uh, which was I was um, hired by the college and I was teaching the choreography for the theater and choir departments when we met. And as soon as we adopted our first child, I quit everything so that I could be a good Mormon, stay-at-home mom, like pioneer-like woman. I could cook bread from scratch. I could can fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. I like, yes, I was a an amazing stay-at-home mom because stay-at-home moms have to be all of these things within Mormondom in order to be good enough. And if you're not, if you're working outside of the home, well, let's mommy shame you if you're and and society does that as well. Mormonism just adds its extra flavoring. Like, you know, you have your salt, your pepper. Here's some Mrs. Dash. And then here's some Chipotle seasoning. Yeah. <laughs> On top of that, yeah. The Mormonism. So we just, you know, Mormonism met the toxicity of society. And then they just like 10 upped it. Yeah, Mormonism seems to come with a huge amount of pressure. Like there's pressure in all religions, but then there are some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses as well, where the Mm -hmm. pressure to perform is just so intense. And you're in this gigantic fishbowl all the time with other religious people uh, judging you. Yeah, we call it the the like the triangle. So Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, and Jehovah's Witnesses are very similar in all of their teachings, which makes sense. They all came from, like, upstate New York, that area, around the same time, and have their different origin stories that then matriculated down. Ah. I would say Mormonism has been the most successful at recruitment um, of the three. But yes, of those, those three, there's a lot of a lot of commonality. So at what point did you step away from Mormonism then? Did you, you were married and you had two kids or three kids or? So I was married. We had recently adopted our 
youngest. So that's seven kids at the time because my eight, uh, we just recently took custody of and he's 16. So um, we we put one right in the middle. We were like, hey, seven's not enough. I'm not doing any younger. 17. <laughs> so, uh, or 16. Um, so anyway, we had adopted our youngest. I was just really struggling with getting burned out. So my husband was, again, U.S. Army at the time. He deployed to Afghanistan. Um, he's a medical provider. So his job was to provide medicine as close to the front lines as was safe, both for the local Afghanis and for soldiers. And basically, it didn't matter who you were. As long as you weren't trying to blow us up, we'll provide medical care for you, which my husband absolutely loved that his time in the military was um, mostly with prisoners. He actually worked most with prisoners and the local community mm-hmm. uh, on his on his uh, the couple of deployments that he went on, and he loved that. Um, so he went away to Afghanistan. We were separated, and he was serving at the time as a Mormon bishop, and they did not release him from that calling. So the way that it works in Mormon uh, communities is that your local leaders are not paid a dime. So everything is volunteer. So basically, your bishop is similar to a priest or a pastor um, in in other religions. So it's uh, basically a full-time job, but you're not paid. So you have Mm. to keep your other full-time job. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was gone all the time. And then they deploy him to Afghanistan. And he they didn't they didn't say, okay, you're in Afghanistan. You don't have to be the bishop anymore. We'll call somebody else. They're like, there's not anybody else to call. You're staying. And so he led our ward, which is about 500 people um, congregation because the Mormons do it geographically. So basically they draw lines on a map and say, this is your ward. This is where you go. And it's all based, the, the congregations are based on geographical location and to get permission to attend a different one. Um, you have to go talk to the prophet about that. So it's a little... Crazy there. But I was like, you are showing up and giving so much of this emotion to everybody except our family. I've got seven kids. Um, Three of them are special needs. So my youngest two are both on the autism spectrum. And my 19-year-old has schizophrenia. And I'm like, I've got three special needs kids. Oh, and and my uh, second youngest, so she's 10, also has Crohn's disease. Oh, wow. And microcephaly, she was born addicted to drugs. So she's got microcephaly. She's got severe ADHD. She's on the autism spectrum and she has Crohn's. And I'm like, I am dying. I'm I'm running a private practice. You know, I'm working full-time there. And then I'm still being the, the stay-at-home mom, everything. Like my husband supported me in going to work, but our division of labor didn't change. And not because he's a jerk, but because he was so busy in the church mm-hmm. that he didn't have time. And then I was serving as, at the time I was teaching early morning seminary um, and distance learning seminary, which is every morning, five o'clock in the morning, I have all these sleepy teenagers coming to my house and I'm teaching them about Mormonism um, every day. And then at one point I was the young women's president and I was primary president, like we were high demand. So my husband is, you know, working basically 80 hours or more and he's in the army. So when the army says go, he just goes. So that means I'm alone a lot. Um, I was working my job or going to school, raising all of these kids. And then we were like, hey, we're going to, we've got one more move in us before you can retire. Um, And so we bought our house where we live now in Missouri. And we did it wrong. You're you're supposed to wait for orders and then buy your house. And I was like, because our kids are going to start school, 
I'm taking the, we're going to go ahead and take the risk. So we bought our house and then the military withdrew the orders. So, or they didn't come. And then they're like, they'll come next month and then they'll come next month. So I moved to Missouri because we had a house and he stayed in Texas. And for those 11 months, I was once again, a single mama and he would not drive home on as many weekends. So it's about a 10 hour drive. So he was driving to Missouri to spend a weekend with us every now and then. And then he would say, Hey, I can't come because I have this duty with the ward. I can't come. I have this duty. And I was like, I'm done. Like I am so burned out. And I was, became suicidal. Um, it was winter in Missouri. We'd had a horrible ice storm. And as I was driving to work, I'd gotten all my kids to school and I'm, and I'm driving into work. And the thought comes to me, just swerve the wheel right now. You will crash into the cliff face and nobody will know that it's suicide. They'll think it was just a tragic mm-hmm. accident. And I could have gotten away with that because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's everything is ice mm-hmm. um, in, in Missouri. Like we, we don't get tons of snow. We get a lot of ice. But when we do get snow, it's everything's frozen. Roads are slippery mm-hmm. and they plow them and do their best. But, you know, in between mountain cuts, there's all kinds of ice everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that, so I just slowly moved my car over, pulled it over, rolled down the window and I threw my keys out the window. And the reason that I was able to go, you cannot do this. My only reason for living is, Sarah, you see children where their parents died by suicide. You can't do that to your kids. You love them too much. You cannot do that to your kids. If I had not had my kids and if I had not had that professional experience where I was seeing it, Mm -hmm. I don't think I would be here today. Right. So after I calmed down, I called a friend. I was like, hey, I'm not in a good place. Um, and I, you know, got a hold of my husband and and whatnot. Um, once I got everything squared away and I was in an okay place to drive again, I had to get out of my car and go search through the snow for my keys that I'd thrown out because I have a push start button on my car. So keys outside the window means I can't go anywhere. Oh, so to get out of my car and go find my keys. Okay. Um Got those back into my car, drove the rest of the way to my office because I was closer there. And then I went to the psychiatric hospital. And while in that psychiatric hospital, I was like, you're burned out. Something has to go. What can you give up? And and this is right before COVID really hit. So this is the January before COVID shut down. Um, And so I'm uh, in the hospital. There's another young Mormon woman there, which is shocking because where I live in Missouri, there's not a ton of us. So there's another young Mormon mother here and she'd been in the psych unit for like five months. And she's like, I'm just too anxious. I can't take care of my kids. I can't take care of my husband. I've got to repent. I've got to do all these things. And so she's in here like preaching. I've got to repent. I've got to get my life in order. I got to get through this anxiety so I can go take care of my family. And I'm like, girl, you've got religious OCD. Like you're, you've got, this is religion, whatever. And I, and I've been able, I've seen now in my clinic my Mormon clients don't progress past the first six sessions. My non-Mormon clients are getting better and graduating from treatment usually three to six months and maintaining those gains for years. So I'm starting to see some of these, what's going on in Mormonism. So for a while, I was love the doctrine, hate the culture. That, that was kind of how I like mentally gymnastic my mm-hmm. way. And I was in that place for probably a decade wow. of love the doctrine, hate the culture. And that's because my kids who are adopted, they're sealed to me. So in heaven, they're mine. And if I leave Mormonism, I'm going to lose my kids. Wow. Like that was what kept the me pressure. That, that in that Mormonism state. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the hospital and I'm like, okay, I can't give up my marriage. You know, 
being divorced. I can't, can't continue to do that. That's not cool. Um, and I love my husband. Like, there's no reason to divorce him. But he has to, like, pay more attention to us. Like, we need him home. But at that point, he wasn't ready to be like, if you drop Mormonism, you'll be home more. Um, so we have that. And then I'm like, I can't quit my job working outside of the home. Like, all of my kids are in school now. If I stop working, I, I have nothing... I have nothing to do. I will literally just lay in bed all day. I've got to have a reason and a purpose. Um, And I loved having my own income because I've never had to depend on my husband's income Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. Um, So I love having that discretionary income. And I was like, I don't want to give that up. That's like, that's where Sarah gets to be. Sarah unfiltered. I need to be Sarah unfiltered somewhere. So I can't give that up. I'm obviously not going to give away my special needs kiddos. The only thing left was Mormonism. That was it. So I came out of the hospital and I told my husband, I was like, look, I'm burned out. I'm going to just take a step back from activity in the church. I'm going to be released from my calling. Something has to give so that I can heal because I got diagnosed with a true nervous breakdown. Like I could no longer read like a paragraph. I'd read it over and over and it made no sense. I couldn't track the lines. Like I was having very physical symptoms to the nervous breakdown. And um, shortly after that, I had a, a mixed faith client. So I have a client, the husband is super active in the Mormon church and the female's not. The female says to me, Sarah, I will only see you if you can demonstrate and prove to me that you're willing to engage with my opinions and not just shoot them down because I'm not a member of the church. And I'm like, I do that all the time. Like I I had like lots of people say, hey, Sarah's great because she won't use religion. Like I don't, I don't practice. I've never practiced as a Christian counselor or a Mormon counselor. I've always practiced according to evidence-based treatment, according to the governmental laws and ACA ethics. And I've never, it's like, if you want to bring your religion in as the client, you can, but I'm going to present everything from that scientific evidence-based practice mm-hmm. model. Very good. So for mixed faith members, I was like, you know, oh, you guys are struggling with being mixed faith. Let's work on your communication skills. Let's work on your empathy skills. Let's look at, you know, seeing things from the other person's perspective, you know? So I'd heard a lot of, you know, things that I was like, oh, that's just anti-Mormon. So I'm not going to pay attention to that, but I'm not judging. I'm not judging my client. Sure. And and I was able to do that. So I, I was well known for that uh, here in Missouri and also in Texas. And so, but this lady comes in, she's never met me. And she's like, you have to do this. And I said, great. I said, look, right now I've got a full clinic. I can dedicate only three hours to researching whatever you send me. So whatever you send me, make it, make it valuable and dense Mm -hmm. because I am not going to be able to dedicate more than three hours. And I was a little concerned even with that. Cause I'm like, I'm gonna have a hard time reading. And I also told her, I think I told her audiobook is best right now. I'm struggling with my eyesight right now. So audio is best. What she ended up sending me is called the CES letter. And I, at the time, I want to say it's like a 30, 40 page document. And it is basically a, the short notes of the historical issues in Mormonism and that Joseph Smith is a con man and Mm -hmm. all of these things. But also it was all cited, like research-based cited. So I've got a deep respect for source material Mm -hmm. and APA, like, I'm going to follow the sources. Okay. So you're claiming this. I'm going to go read that in context. And then I would find the original source or pictures of it. And I would read it and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And most of the source material 
was actually back to the LDS Church's website where this information is buried, like wow. like 20 clicks in the most obscure places. But I'm like, this is on the church's own website. So I'm going to say that's going to be a reliable source that, mm-hmm. that the church is acknowledging that this mm-hmm. really happened. Wow. And when I read that CES letter and I followed the sources and I followed probably 80% of those sources, like to the source material, mm-hmm. it was the permission slip for me. It was like, you've noticed all these things that are wrong. You've struggled with the culture. You're watching people not get better in your own clinic. And it's not you because non-Mormons get better and Mormons don't. Mm. And you're giving them the, you know, I'm giving them Gottman certified communication skills training, working Mm -hmm. with Sue Johnson's at Mm -hmm. um, acceptance and commitment therapy. I'm working from CBT and DBT. Like these things work. Mm -hmm. Why are my Mormon clients stalling Mm -hmm. in the same place over and over and over again? This is weird. And so I read the CES letter. I followed the sources and I was like, that's not true. This is not the one and only true church on the earth. Get out. Be- wow. Yes. And, and that was it. And then my husband. Then we went into marital struggles. Because for my husband, I was deceived, led astray. Satan had control over me. And over the next, I'm going to say, what, two and a half, three years, he and I struggled until about six months ago now. He left as well. Wow. Yeah. And wow. We're doing better than ever. Like we are so oh. happy. Um, <laughs> and I'm happy 10, for you. We got a 10% pay raise because we no longer pay 10% <laughs> That's right. for the Mormon church, which is mandatory to get to that temple. So, yes. Oh, I mean, you have to pay to go. You have to pay wow. to go. Mormonism is... got that pay raise and paid off a bunch of debt. And so oh. How a lot wonderful. more financially secure. And... Yeah. I, I, this is just a beautiful um, bringing things to to a close for this uh, podcast episode. I can't believe we've already been going for an hour. Your story is amazing. I recommend that everyone get your book, Trauma Bonded. It just sounds like it's chock full of uh very useful information that will be really helpful for people. Um, how can they find you? So the the full title of the book is Trauma, Trauma Bonded, A True Story of Navigating Attachments Forged in Complex PTSD. Um, the best way to find and anywhere you buy books. So just go to your favorite place to buy books, whether that's Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere. Um, it's it's available. Um, it also the audio book is available on Audible only. Um, But if you type in trauma bonded and then my name's Sarah Westbrook, it'll be the first thing that pops up on your search. If you just put in trauma bonded um, on Amazon anyway, you have to scroll a little bit before you find it because there's there's some sex tapes called trauma bonded on Amazon. (laughs) There's nothing nothing problematic as you scroll up, but just don't be shocked. Right. Um, it's got a white, the white cover with the the rope knot on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, Barnes and Noble, um, Book Hub. There's several uh, where you can buy the book, um, and then you can also follow me if you would like to at DaisyGirlCommunications.com. There's a link mm-hmm. there that you can reach out and contact me. You're welcome to ask me any questions that you might have. I have a very interactive audience, which I absolutely love. Um, yeah. If you're wanting to see if trauma bonded is for you, I'm on. It's on Goodreads. Um, I think it has 4.8 or 4.9 stars there. Over Excellent. 20 reviews. 
Same on Amazon Mm -hmm. with those reviews. So the best thing you can do for me is if you buy it, please do leave a review on the platform that you buy books from um, and and let me know. Let me know what you think. Beautiful. And then you also have uh, your two podcasts, Unpacking Mormonism and Other Religious Trauma and Mm -hmm. Raising Crazy, Growing Up to Show Up. Yes. And in January, we're bringing a third one and we're just calling it Unpacking with Sarah. So that one will be there. And that one is going to be very dedicated, uh, very short episodes. So not these long form episodes, but very short episodes um, where you're basically going to get the same tools, psychoeducational tools in your tool belt that I use in my clinic here. Love it. Oh, that's great. Attaching the worksheets and the blog posts and the research behind all of that. This is the project that I'm working moving forward. And then my husband and I are going to be, we're still working on all the paperwork, starting a foundation called Briggs Foundation. This is my son's name is Brigaman. And so Briggs Foundation is going to be bringing free and reduced cost therapy to those we haven't coined it all the way, but the working and struggling. Um, Those who Mm -hmm. don't have full interest. So like here in the United States, where um, insurance is a, is a problem and getting access to things. Mm -hmm. There's this nice little like lower working class, middle class where it's just not affordable. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I really want to target that population say, Hey, we've got some funds here and you don't have to get that counseling for me. It can be at yours. So keep an eye on my website for that link to come up because you can donate to that. And, um, we are hoping that, um, 99% of the funds donated will go directly to therapeutic services because I'll be able to run it, which means I'm not going to charge the foundation. Excellent. Sarah Westbrook, thank you for everything that you are doing to help our demographic, our community of people who are recovering from religious trauma. I just really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us today and to let people know that um, there is hope and there is help available. I hope people will reach out to you. I'll make sure to leave links in the show notes. And I want to thank you everyone for uh, joining us this week and we'll see you again soon. Take care everyone. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much.